Welcome back to the Doctors and Dollars podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Mark McLaughlin. Mark is a board-certified neurosurgeon, physician advocate, speaker, author, sportsman, philanthropist, lifelong learner, and principal leader who leverages his academic training and life experiences to inspire and serve. He founded Princeton Brain, Spine, and Sports Medicine in the late 1990s. His practice has enabled him to branch out into other service areas and indulge his passions as a mentor to young physicians, a wrestling coach, a media personality, and a motivational guide for aspiring, emerging, and established leaders. Welcome to the show, Dr. McLaughlin. What's going well today? Thanks for having me. What's going well? We're having a great snowstorm here in New Jersey, and I'm going to expect that probably my wrestling practice has been canceled because schools are canceled. So I'll have an afternoon to catch up on my to-do list, which is quite large. I've been looking at it and working at it. And it's got, I've got a few things on this list. So absolutely. Uh, yeah. But, but I think, it's going well. Yeah. I think between you and me though, like you'd rather, you'd rather go to wrestling practice than do the to-do list. Of course, of course. But the obstacle is the way, right? Absolutely. How long is wrestling practice? Usually a couple hours. We go about an hour, an hour and a half. Um, I've ran three this week already. I ran Tuesday and Thursday in Princeton. And then on Wednesday, I had an opportunity to speak at Ewing Wrestling, which is a nearby town. And they had heard some of my talks uh, and, and asked me to come speak. So it was really fun to go over there. And it's, you know, it's youth wrestling. So I, I really work on making it fun, having a good time and teaching moves and just, uh, you know, just spreading the word of, of performance. So it was fun to talk to the kids. I talked to them a little bit about fear and, you know, and courage and the differences. And so I just love it. Last night was one of my favorite nights of the year. I just had a, a really great practice with my team in Princeton and it's, I just love doing it. That's awesome. I mean, fear and, and courage are things that I, that I definitely want to bring up to you today. So I'm, I'm glad it's fresh in your mind, but like youth wise, are these like third graders to eighth graders? Are we talking high school kids? What is, what's the youth range there? That's exactly what it is. I typically coach youth wrestling primarily, so third through eighth graders. I do have some high schoolers that I, I help mentor, but I'm not a high school wrestling coach. Uh, just youth. I've been doing it for about 23 years now. And, and the thing I love about our programs is we have from the highest level of kids to the lowest level of kids. We tell the kids, you just come, we'll get you in the right group, and we're going to teach you all the same stuff at different levels. And that's the beauty of the program is that uh, we'll take anybody and we'll, we'll teach you the basics and we'll teach you the highest level of wrestling. And there's something for everybody there. But along the way, because wrestling is just the carrot, in my, my view, wrestling is just mm -hmm. the carrot. The, the lessons that wrestling teaches you, I think, is incredible. I mean, first of all, we'll talk more about fear, but I call it a fear laboratory. It's one of those places where kids get scared. And they can have safe challenges and you can talk them through their fears. Sometimes their fears are just stepping out on the mat and being alone out there in front of the everybody in the stands. Sometimes it's fear of the opponent that they have, that they're bigger and stronger. Or they look older. Um, there's all kinds of fears that we, we need to work with on these kids. But I love that. I love the fact that wrestling, and it's not just wrestling, it's sports in general. They teach a young athlete responsibility really that you can be the architect of your life. And that's what I got out of wrestling when I was a kid is that I'm responsible for everything that happens to me and I'm responsible for how I respond. So I tell the kids like, you know, life is like a checkers game and, you know, life makes a move 
and then you get to do your move and life mm. doesn't do anything to you. You choose the move and that's, that's your life. So it's wonderful. It's a wonderful sport. But again, I'm, I'm a fan of all your youth sports. Absolutely. I mean, and wrestling can be a great analogy in life in general. And I think checkers is a good one too. Well, while not a sport, the game of checkers, I think is calculating, right? And you got to be very disciplined in, in each move that you make. And so I, I think that's a great analogy as well. But I want, to, I want to start out with you. Tell me a story. Speaking of youth, tell me a story. Being a young child, I read something about you online that your grandfather was also uh, a doctor. Uh, you looked up to him, went with him on house calls. Tell, tell me a story, you know, following your grandfather around like what that did for you as a young kid. And then, you know, is that what really sparked you to say, Hey, I'm definitely going to be, you know, a physician and, and someone who helps people when I get older. Sure. My, yeah, my grandfather was my idol. He was, you know, an of Italian heritage born in the United States, but a, a son of immigrants. His father was a tailor in orange, New Jersey, and uh, he had a flourishing business in Orange, New Jersey, and my grandfather was destined to take on the family business. But a caring teacher in my grandfather's high school walked home one time with my grandfather to talk to his father, my great-grandfather. And he said to him, your son is really, really talented, very, very smart, and I think he could be a doctor. And fortunately, my great-grandfather listened and also had the financial wherewithal at the time to send him to medical school. So my grandfather went from Orange, New Jersey, traveled across the Hudson, took three different buses to get to medical school at NYU, and he went through medical medical school and graduated and then began practicing. And a couple of years later, he uh, got the money to get his younger brother to go to medical school, and he covered his younger brother's medical school. So my grandfather was a general surgeon, and general surgeons back in the day did a lot of OBGYN. They were, they were actually the delivery doctors and they did cesarean sections as well. So my grandfather had delivered probably over 5,000 babies in the Orange, New Jersey area. And there are still some of his babies that he delivered that I get to see uh, when I give talks up in the North New Jersey area and they come up and they say hello to me. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. But, uh, I used to hang around with him. He was a great storyteller. You know, he was in the Navy and he was a Navy surgeon. And I was always kind of an old soul. I would hang around with him. I would just drink up his, his stories. When all the kids would go out and play, I would just sit next to him and listen. And I took a liking to, you know, what he did and I, an interest in it. And so he, one day he took me down to the hospital and walked me around on rounds. And then one thing led to another and I began going on rounds with him, carrying his black bag for him. And he used to do house calls. So I would go on house calls with him on the weekends. And I got to really see, you know, what a physician did early on, not just the, the technical aspects of a surgeon, but also the art of, of medicine, which was really, really neat. And then imprinted in me. And so, when I ultimately got to live my dream out and go to medical school and I started doing it, I, I realized how grateful I was because not only was it something that I, I thought I wanted to do, but when I got there, I was like, wow, I'm pretty good at this. I mm -hmm. really enjoy it. It was what it was like the, 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 the confluence of a whole bunch of things in my life. And I thought, wow, I'm really lucky because I saw some people in medical school that weren't that enthusiastic about it. You know, they, I think their goal was to get in, but not to be a doctor. My goal was always, always to be a doctor and to be like my grandfather.
Yeah. I thought it was interesting as I was reading kind of your, your background of your education to get a degree in philosophy, N not a common thing, right? You know, most people are pre-med biology, biochemistry, whatever it might be that then gets them into medical school, kind of checks that box for a lot of medical schools, right? You went philosophy right. route. How much do you think that helped you? I have to imagine if I was doing that same route, it would be, you know, I saw the, the art that my grandfather had. I know that I have to be able to talk to patients a certain way, understand kind of the psychology and what they're doing. Did philosophy, do you feel like helped you with that to, to be able to understand people and thinking and outside of just the medical side of things? Well, I wish I could say I was that wise as an 18 year old <laughs> freshman at William and Mary. I, I fortunately, what I had was I had a great wrestling coach. His name was Al Platt and he was intimately associated with the freshmen and making sure they got got their they got their boots on the ground safely at college and he was um you know a huge advocate of our of our of our scholarly activities as well as our wrestling and when i told him i wanted to go into medicine the first thing he said to me is don't major in bio or chem because you can't wrestle division one and be a bio and chem major plus those classes are meat grinders there's 400 kids in the class and there's a huge bell curve. And so not many people get A's and B's and you've got to get A's and B's in every one of your classes. He said, uh, I want you to take something that's going to be a little lighter on the reading, a little more on the thinking. Why don't you try philosophy? And I thought, okay. And he said, hey, this is a teacher that's been well-liked in the, in the school. You should try him. So I took an intro to philosophy class and at my coach's you know, um, uh, warning, I didn't take any science my first year at all. Wow. And, you know, he said, basically what I want you to do is I want you to come in as a sophomore when you, you already got your boots on the ground, you know how to study, you're more mature and you can go into a classroom and you can, you know, excel at it. And he said he had a lot of people that went into these early bio and took bio and chem because they want to be doctors and they got C's and then all of a sudden they got discouraged and they, they got knocked off their path. So he kind of guided me there. And then this one teacher, George Harris at William and Mary was just this remarkable teacher who, you know, uh, the readings were, were provocative for me. I enjoyed thinking about them and I found I had uh, like an alacrity for it and, and enjoyed it. So I began doing more of it. Now, along the way, A, that did help me because it helped me with a more humanities background. And when I got to medical school and I got to residency, I think that emotionally the philosophy training was very helpful for me. And it's helped me be inquisitive and retrospective on my career. So it's helped me a lot later in my career to find ways to continually love what I do, which is what I've been able to do. I'm really happy that I've been able to do that. I haven't done it on my own. I've done it with a lot of help and a lot of coaches, but I love what I do and I want other doctors to love what they do. And I know that some of them do and some of them are questioning uh, whether they love what they do now. And that's where, you know, I think there's a very important change that's happening in medicine that physicians need to uh, grasp hold of. So long story about my grandfather and philosophy but really, I think every moment in your life, if you look at it as a tool to advance, it can be. And for me, it was. Absolutely. Do you think your time at William Mary, you said you were a wrestler, a Division One wrestler there as well. You make a lot of comparisons between the sport of wrestling to life, which is kind of tying in 
your time wrestling there, but also your time getting your philosophy degree, you know, making that comparison. How would you, what does that mean to you to compare wrestling to life, you know, philosophically, but also from the, from the point of a neurosurgeon? Well, there's a great quote by Donald Rumsfeld. I think it is something like, some people say wrestling is like life. And he said, they're wrong. Wrestling is life reduced <laughs> to its essence. Ooh. So, and I love, I've always loved that quote. Why I say brain surgeries like wrestling is because it's personal. It's very high stakes. It's extremely demanding intellectually and physically, and it has incredible rewards. And so I found this really the same things that I got out of wrestling. I get out of medicine and I get out of brain surgery. Because, you know, I, I always say to my wrestlers, you know, I put on a uniform every morning, I go into a locker room, I scout out an opponent, I then walk into a hallowed ground, the operating theater, and I have to perform. And as I get ready to perform, I deal with the same demons you deal with before you get on the wrestling mat. Am I good enough to do this? Have I thought this all out? Do I have all my bases covered? Am I going to get this person through all those things? If you're a human being, that's what runs through your head. And you have to have a systematic way of dealing with that and coming out and doing the very best that you can. And that's how you deal with fear. Yeah. It's a beautiful way to think about it. I, I love that. I, I was getting a little fired up like a locker room talk as you were saying that I'm like, that was really good. One thing I know I, I did a little bit of research on you, obviously, before we talked today and uh, one thing that you talk to to youth wrestlers is, is finding that switch, right? What does finding that switch mean to you? And, and obviously, just as you were talking, I could tell how that would translate then to the operating room. You, you have to get up each morning, find that switch. What's going to be that big difference? But what, is, what does that phrase mean to you? The Physicians Financial Summit is coming to Chicago in 2024. Now, the Physicians Financial Summit is probably exactly the opposite of what you think it is. I'm sure you've gotten a free dinner and went to an event where a financial advisor shared a few things and tips and tricks. That's not what this is. You're not going to get a free dinner, unfortunately, and we are not financial advisors. This is going to be an action-packed two days where we break down the exact playbook that I used that allowed me to retire at the age of 33 and is going to guarantee that you are prepared and ready for a prosperous retirement. Now, there's way too much info that I can cover in this video, but I will promise you two things. One, this is going to change your life forever. And two, we are going to make this much simpler than you realize was possible. Just like you break down important and complicated medical stuff for us as patients, we're going to do the same for you. So if talking about money would make you want to pull your hair out, this is not the event for you. But if you want to see behind the scenes of how the wealthy prepare their financial futures, and what you can do to be better prepared financially, then we will see you there in March, 2024, Chicago. The switch to me means that you stop thinking about the future and you focus immediately on the present moment. So if it's in the operating room and I'm operating on a tumor, I think about getting around the tumor, I think about shrinking the tumor, and I think about gutting the tumor, removing it piecemeal. If it's a spine operation, my objective is to find the normal anatomy, to define my landmarks, then to approach the abnormal anatomy and to find a way to, to, to dissect it or to 
remove it in a way that doesn't obstruct the normal anatomy, doesn't damage the normal anatomy. So it's really the basics. Keep blood loss to a minimum. Keep your tissue planes clear. Keep reorienting yourself. I tell my kids when you're about to wrestle a match, I don't care if you're going to wrestle Dan Gable or Kale Sanderson or, you know, the, the guy walking across the street. If you control the wrists, if you control the ties, if you explode on bottom and you're relentless on your feet, you, the good things are going to happen. And you're going to walk off that mat, win, lose your draw, and you're going to be proud of your performance. And that's really what you need. That's the attitude you need to have because neurosurgery has a lot of challenges and this operations aren't always successful. And if you uh, second guess yourself or you beat yourself up on something and say, Oh, I could have done this better. I could have done that better. That's, that's a useless statement to me saying I could have done something better. Everybody can do something better. Looking, knowing what you know now, you can look back on every moment of your life beforehand and say, Oh, I could have done that better. It's useless though. It's just basically, it's self-improvement that's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's guilt and hostility masquerading as self-improvement. People who do that, I try to counsel them and say, no, well, that's, a, that's an obvious statement. Of course, you could do better knowing what you know now uh, if you do the same exact, if you focus with the same exact event. But what you need to do now is talk about what worked, what didn't work, and what are you going to do differently in the future? That's a very different mindset. And that's, and I can't say that I had this when I first started either. This is sure. a learning process for me. But years ago when I would have an office hours and I'd see 25 patients and 24 of them would be doing well, but the one person, you know, that I saw at 12 noon wasn't doing well, I'd go home thinking about that one person and I wouldn't let myself relax and I wouldn't, I would hold myself to this impossible standard. I've gotten stronger and more intelligent in, in saying, this is the business I've chosen. There is no such thing as 100% success rate in surgery. And you go out and put forth the very best effort that you have and use the skills that you have on that day and time and let everything else, the cards fall where they may. Yeah, that was well said. I, I think the quote that I always think about that I think really summarizes well what you said is there's a reason that the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror. Like you got to yeah. always be looking forward. Like don't be looking back because if you're constantly looking back, then you're not looking at the road, right? You're not looking at the path forward if you're constantly looking in the rear view mirror. So I like that. Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a, there's a truth to that, a, a, an amazing truth to that. And that, yeah, it, it, you can look at the rear view mirror just to see what you've just passed for a quick second. And like you said, learn from some of those mistakes and what are you going to do moving forward? But yeah, to constantly be, I guess, wallowing is the word that I would use in, in the past and mistakes that you've made or things that didn't go what, the way you thought they would really doesn't yeah. serve anybody's purpose well and, and doesn't serve every, everybody that's in your windshield in front of you. It doesn't serve them well either if, if you're still looking in the back. So I think that's well done. One of my uh, coaches has pointed out that, you know, it's this mountain that you just keep climbing and there's no top to it. There's no top. You just keep climbing. And every once in a while you get to a vista and yeah, look down for a minute to see where you've come, but don't look where you don't want to go. And that's mm -hmm. where you don't want to go is down. So get moving and get looking upward as well. I like that. You mentioned a moment ago, uh, a famous wrestler from my home state of Iowa, Cale Sanderson, has another quote that I love that unless you continually work, evolve and innovate, you'll learn a quick and painful lesson from someone who has. 
And so talk to me about the evolution and innovation that you've had in neurosurgery. You talked about in, early in your career, you were not, you were not the man you were today, which obviously that's how a lot of people are in, in their early in their careers. But as you've had this long, successful career, how have you innovated? How have you had innovation and how have you had evolution within your career? That's a great question. I mean, I think what I say to, I say to all of my colleagues is every five years or so, I, I say to myself, man, you're so much better of a surgeon than you were five years ago or 10 years ago, or, you know, how could I look back and I'm like, oh gosh, I think I should give some, give some of those people discounts on my surgery. But I mean, the fact of the matter is I got the job done, but now I get the job done slicker, more efficiently with less time. And, and that's everybody. I mean, whenever I, we have new doctors in the hospital, sometimes I'll be asked, you know, Dr. So-and-so took XYZ long time to do the surgery. Is that okay? I'm like, of course it's okay. He's a new surgeon. That's the way it is. That's the way they learn. Important innovations. I think they, they come, you know, they were really like revelations for me. So one of them yeah. for me was, was reading. I was not a strong reader in, in college. That was one of the reasons I liked philosophy was not long reading, just deep reading, short paragraphs sometimes were the whole weekly assignment. But I like that. In medical school, I was always motivated to read what, what I needed to because that's that was my that was my goal. Mm -hmm. But as far as reading fiction, nonfiction, self-help, memoir, I was never a strong reader until I had to start my own practice. I started Princeton Brain and Spine. I realized I had people I needed to manage. I had QuickBooks I needed to learn. I had, you know, all kinds of business challenges that I'd never ever experienced before. So I began listening to books on tape in my car, wherever I was driving. I began every moment of time that I could when I was like walking to my car from the hospital, when I was walking in, walking out, I would be listening to a book on tape. One of my favorites in the early days was uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins. What a masterpiece of a book. And Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yep. And so I began reading those books and it just, as I read, I just wanted more and more and more. And I became a very active reader and not only an active reader, but like a voracious reader. I would devour these books. I would mark them up, put notes on them, make note cards. And I would share it with as many people as I could. Because I remember my boss, Dr. Janetta said, if you don't talk about what you're reading, you just don't remember it. So I would share all those points and, and you know, pearls. And that was a major, major revolution for me. I think the second one, and all surgeons will probably tell you, there's a day when they they do a surgery where things are touch and go for a little while, where you don't know if you're going to get that job done or not. And you stick to your guns and you do what needs to get done and you finish and you, you learn that I am a fully trained board certified neurosurgeon and I can handle things. And that was, that happened to me during one operation. And it might be a story I tell at the, uh, at the summit where I got lost under the microscope, you know, and I had, I had the scans up. I had the right patient. I was on the right side, but we were in a microanatomy world and you need to use your three-dimensional mind and you need to triangulate it off of where this lesion was that I was trying to find in this patient's brain. And it wasn't where everything that I used told me where it was and I had to figure myself a way out of it. And I did after, you know, a couple of different trials and a couple of different methods, I got it. And I walked out of the hospital that day and I said, 
I can handle any of this now. I know I can. So that was sort of an, a second transformation for me. And then I think the third most important one, which is uh, another story that I, I might talk about, and that is I realized that I was holding myself to an impossible standard, that I wanted every single patient to get well, that I looked at the disease as the enemy and I was beating the enemy. And when the disease won, I lost to the enemy. I was looking at it wins and losses. And what I realized was that every single interaction I have with a patient, even if they're dying of the most awful brain tumor that's completely incurable, I can make a positive impact on that person. I can make a positive impact on that family. I can get a win out of it because I focus on what's needed at that moment and I provide it. And that was a huge, huge revelation. I realized that I wasn't going to bring everybody back to normal health, but I could positively impact patients and their families and the ripple effects of that were staggering. Mm. And that was, that was really a huge eye opener for me. And that was when I went back to see a patient who I had thought had really had a sort of poor outcome. I went back to see them 20 years later and they still had a life and they were with their family and they were part of their family and their family didn't think I had let them down. I had just thought I had let them down. And so that, that one day uh, I realized, wow, like what a gift. Like I, this one patient who I thought was one of the worst catastrophes in my career turned out to be one of the best best experiences I've ever had. And so it's really the way you think that creates your world. The words you use and the thoughts you think are what create your world. And you can think about, oh, this is the enemy and I have to win. Or you can think about, all right, my purpose on earth is to serve. How can I serve this dying patient? How can I make this one day for them, this one moment, a positive interaction? Or how can I ease their suffering in some way? And by doing that, I'm getting every win. I'm getting a win on every patient. I think that's awesome for anyone to hear, physician or non-physician, because I think a lot of people will look at a, a brain surgeon, for example, and not think that they're having those emotions, or that they're having those thoughts of how can I make this person who is in a very dire situation, maybe dying from a brain tumor, how can I make this day best for them? They, they probably look at brain surgeons like, yeah, they're, they're like a robot. They just go in there and, you know, cut a skull open, do some surgery and don't even think about the patient at all. So I think that's amazing insight that you just provided from a surgeon's point of view. I think looking at other surgeons and, and I've had some, you know, on the show previously, I, I got to imagine there's a sense of uh, imposter syndrome when you come out of residency and, and you start and, and surgeries become more common. Uh, in your day to day, there, there's, there's gotta be a point of imposter syndrome. Like, am I good enough for this? I really shouldn't be here. I, I, I should be doing something else. But then you have a moment like you just described where it completely changes your perspective and your outlook on what it is you do and, and the purpose that you have. And so I think that was well, well done. That was well said. Thank you. Yeah. You have a book, cognitive dominance, where you talk about fear, outthinking fear. I think fear is one of the amazing things in our lives. And I get scared sometimes, right? You know, we're, we're going to be at the summit together here in a couple months. I'm hosting and master of ceremonies, you know, emceeing the thing. We're going to get up in front of a couple hundred people uh, and give a talk. There's going to be some fear that goes with that. 
But what does fear mean to you when you are preparing for those events where you're, you're a speaker, you're writing, or you're providing leadership guidance? How do you overcome fear and, and how can others overcome that fear? Sure. I gave this talk to the kids in Ewing on Wednesday and yeah, you know, I it. asked them, I said, okay, what's the opposite of, of courage, you know? And, uh, you know, everybody said, you know, a couple of different things. And then we, we got started talking about fear and I said, okay, well, that's, that's good. You know, let's tell me more, tell me more. And you know, the kids started talking about, you know, how you, you, when you're courageous, you don't have fear. And I said, well, some people say that some people say that, but how do you get more courage? And really the kids didn't have an answer. And I tell them, I, I tell you, I don't have all the answers, but this is how I get more courage. I get more courage by dismantling fear. If I dismantle fear, I become courageous. And in fact, I want to use a different word than courage. I want to use the word love. Courage and love to me are very, very close brothers. And the reason is because look at, look at the Congressional Medal of Honor winners. You know, when they ask uh, another great book, Sebastian Younger War, this is a concept I got from Sebastian Younger. When, when you ask a, a, a Congressional Medal of Honor winner, why did you run across that football field or, you know, that, that length of a field, 100 yards through machine gun fire to go eliminate that one machine gunner when you knew the odds of getting there were one in 100? And their answer is always, well, he was killing my buddies. He was mm -hmm. killing my brothers. And really, when you ask these people about it, they say, well... I had to do it because I was the only one that could do it and they would have done it for me, right? That's more than courage to me. That is yeah. love. That's mm -hmm. pure love. And so what I said to the kids was, if you can love what you're doing, okay? I'm not talking about amorous love. I'm not talking about loving someone in, in a you know romantic fashion. I'm talking about loving who you are, loving what you do and loving your purpose, if you can focus on that, you'll minimize fear. Your fear will disappear and you will perform because fear is a, is a detractor of performance. I used to think a little bit of fear is good, that it, it actually kind of got you primed. I think maybe in the early phases of learning about this, I would think that's what I felt and probably what I used as a motivator. But now kind of like Courage and love 2.0, I realized that any amount of fear for me inhibits my activity. And the way to think about fear is think about your life. Like we basically have three file cabinets in our life. We have the past, we have the present, and we have the future. What file cabinet does fear live in? Always. Future. The, the future, right? Mm -hmm. The yep. future. Fear is the anticipation of event happening that if it happens, it will cause you to feel something that you don't want to feel, right? So say that again. Fear is the thought of a future event that causes you to think that if that event happens, you will feel something you don't want to feel. So what is imposter syndrome? It's you making some kind of a mistake or either verbally or in the OR where you will be judged by another person that looks at you and says, oh, that guy doesn't know how to do that. He can't operate or he can't think or he's not really a smart guy. It's all worrying about something in the future. And it's also based in judgment. It's you fearing somebody judging you. And 
I'd like to hold that up as a mirror to myself every time I think of something like that and say, Mm -hmm. who are you judgmental of? The more you can become less judgmental, the less judgmental you be of other people, the less judgmental you're going to think that they are of you. Don't uh, minimize your judgmentalness. If you minimize your judgmentalness, your fear is going to go down. Your love is going to go up and you're going to perform the way you want to perform. Think about like crossing a, on a, a plank on the floor, right? And you just mm-hmm. a two by four. You just walk right across it, right? On your floor. You put it down on your mat right now. But what if we put that plank across two buildings and there's, you know, a thousand feet below, right? It's the same plank. It's the exact same activity. All you got to do is walk 10 feet, but you become afraid because you think about what will happen in the future as opposed to just walking across the same plank that you did a minute before. So the more I think about fear when I'm feeling it, because I don't think you can ever banish it. I don't think you can ever be fearless. But when I think about it, I go back to present moment. That's in the file cabinet I don't want to be in. I want to be in the file cabinet of the present. Okay. What's my, what's my operation? Where's the anatomy? What do I need to define? Do I have all the right equipment? Okay. And so that's how I diminish fear. And that's how I told my kids to as well. How do you describe or or overcome people's fear that they have of taking action? So I, I think back to the war analogy that you just gave, you know, let's say that that gunner, you know, his buddies are getting shot by the machine gun and he doesn't take action, right? Like what is, what's then the outcome if he lets fear overcome? So I think of people who create a new year's resolution and there's that, that fear of actually taking action on that or someone in corporate America that really in, in their heart believe that they deserve a raise, but they're too scared to go ask their boss for a raise. And so there's just overcoming that fear of taking action, doing the right thing or doing the next thing that they know they need to do what would you say to them in, in helping them overcome that fear and actually take the action that they know they need to take? So the first thing is most of those things we all, we all have done in the past and we say, Oh, I had that opportunity and I let, and I lost it. And I had that opportunity. I lost it again. Don't beat yourself up on that. Don't, don't say I should have done this or I could have done this or I should have known better. Those are, those are just not helpful. On this day that you're going to make this resolution, make yourself a promise and keep your word and be yourself. Like the more we choose to be ourselves, the better we're going to be as a teacher and as a, as somebody who's a performer. So if I start thinking, I'm talking to a medical student and I start going into, you know, pharmacology that I haven't studied in 30 years and I start talking about it. And I say, I start thinking, I might be saying something wrong here, or I might be, that's, that's an important shift we need to make. And I, I, that's, that's, that's what I call knowing, being humble, knowing when you're the, when you should be the teacher and knowing when you should be the student. That's humility to me, knowing when you should be the teacher, knowing when you should be the student. So if I'm start talking to a medical student about pharmacology, the first thing I'll say is, you know, I haven't studied this for 30 years, but the last time I checked, dantrolene was a calcium ha- calcium um, antagonist, calcium channel antagonist. Am I correct? You tell me. You've been studying the pharmacology. So mm-hmm. in that instance, you know, I've, I've gone from the teacher to the student. In a person, let's say they're talking, looking for a raise, I think rather than go- entering the meeting as I deserve this raise, enter the meeting as I'm going to provide Inform- valuable information to my boss 
that's going to help him have a stronger business. And that is, he's going to recognize that, you know, I need a different title or I need more funding, but it should be out of service to the company. And again, if you're thinking about service and not that he owes it to you or she owes it to you, but it's, it's for the best of the company, you're going to come at it in a little better light and you're going to be more yourself if you truly believe that. Absolutely. Let's talk about the Physicians Financial Summit. Coming to Chicago here in a couple months, March 9th and 10th. I would tell people, you know, that that fear of taking action and understanding like, hey, I, I know that I, I'm missing some pieces within my financial plan. I don't have the financial literacy that many others do because I'm a physician that, you know, did years of medical training, didn't get finance training, you know, during that same time. I know I need to come to this event, but there's that fear of taking that next step. I think what you just said perfectly outlines that of don't put yourself in that box of, you know, I should have, or could have put it in the sense of like, I know that this is better use the analogy of, of this is better for the company. If, if this person gets a raise, I think it's better for your financial plan, your kid's future, your grandkid's future. If you take action and coming to the event, you're the keynote speaker for us. I'm anticipating a fantastic talk. I'm excited for it. What can the audience that comes on March 9th, what can they expect to take away from your talk? My sole intent of this talk is to be a benefit to every single person in the audience and not in a motivational way. I don't like motivational talks. I want to be transformational. I want this talk to be transformational. I want people to say, wow, I've never thought of something like that before. Wow. I really, really, this really resonates with me and how I want to grow as a person. And I think there are a few tools and, you know, technologies that I'll be sharing, but more importantly, I'll be sharing experiences that transformed me and I'll be relating it to people in their seats and why it relates to them. I want them to be the hero of the day. I want them to hear the story and see themselves in the same story because we're all alike. We're going to be, we're talking about physicians where we, we we're cut from the same cloth. And we have the same experiences. We have the same challenges of electronic medical records chewing up our time, of more and more administrative demands, of patients that are unrealistic in their expectations at times for what they want us to do, of technological challenges, of all the regulatory issues that come with medicine. There's a whole host of factors in our environment right now that are they're hazardous. And you need the right equipment and the right mindset to deal with them so that you can live a long, happy life and you can serve your purpose, which I, I would bet big that most of these people's serve purpose is the same purpose as mine. And that is to serve people, to be of benefit to people. And yeah, you can get caught in a rut and sometimes you need inspiration. And if you need inspiration, this is a great place to come. But even if you're just looking to build your skill set, in another area of communication, of self-assessment, of personal interaction with people, you're going to come away with something that you can use and something that's valuable not only to you, but to your spouse, to your children, to your friends, to your colleagues. There's a lot here. And I'm excited to give the talk and share with you what I've learned. And I'm also excited to learn from you because I'm gonna be asking you questions I'm going to be asking you what this, how this lands with you. I'm going to be asking you 
share something with us that jogged your, that was jogged, your memory was jogged by what we talked about and tell us how you got through it. Because again, when I, it's the paradox of teaching. When I teach, I tend to learn too. And that's what I want to do. I want to teach. I want to learn. I want to give everybody a transformational experience. That's my goal. And my purpose is to benefit. Absolutely. Your talk aligns perfect with the whole theme of the conference, right? It's transformation. It's being aware then it's understanding and we're providing the understanding and then it's taking action, you know, actually creating a transformation, not a, not a big change. And so I think that the angle that you're going to be coming with your talk is, is going to be perfect to where people can put themselves in, in your shoes and, and to truly feel something as they're listening to it to then, as they hear the rest of the speakers, as they, you know, as Mike, you know, my business partner gets up there and, and talks through a lot of the strategies financially that are going to impact them. If they can put themselves in those shoes and to say, okay, if I do this, here's how it impacts my family, how it impacts my friends, how it can impact my private practice, all of these things. If we can create transformation in multiple categories of their life, we want people walking away, just feeling, you know, we want them to go home on, on Monday and take action and feel like, okay, everything that I just learned over the weekend in Chicago, I'm ready to make a transformation. And that's what we want people to come away with. And I think your talk is going to be a major catalyst for that. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, I enjoyed this conversation today. I don't know about you. I always learn something new from each person that I talk to on, on the podcast. Definitely learned a lot today. I'm excited for our paths to cross here in, in about 50 days at the summit uh, on March 9th and 10th. Me too. Can't wait. All right. Take care, Mark. Thanks for the opportunity.